Welcome to the Choose FI Radio Podcast. You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. Okay, so today we are going to be doing part two of our travel rewards series, and this one is going to be called What Comes After the Chase Gauntlet, Teach Me How to Disney. And I'm super excited to do this. Essentially, at some point, if you've been following us and following what we've been talking about, we have laid out the Chase Gauntlet as the perfect place to start with travel rewards. But at some point, you're going to come to the end of that. And today's discussion is going to help flesh out what comes next. And we're also going to get a chance to highlight the awesomeness of how to do the Disney trip. How you doing, Brad? Yeah, I'm doing great, Jonathan. This should be a fun episode. So this will essentially be part two of our travel reward series. So there's episode nine, obviously, and now and now this one. So this should be good. I'm looking forward to it. Well, you know, I think about all the information that there is in travel rewards. And I got to say that I only have this peripheral interest in it. Like, I don't want to be the one that spends all my time down in the minutia. I'm very much willing to take kind of a Pareto's principle to this. And I want to focus on the 20% that gets me 80% of the results. And that's why I love the change. Gauntlet for its simplicity and effectiveness to allow you to travel basically anywhere in the world that you want to go. But at some point, I think it is important to broaden the scope and show you what some of these tools will allow you to do. And for the person that's come to the end of that Chase Gauntlet, answer the question, what comes next? So our community often dictates where this show goes because we want to give you the information that you need in your life. And Sarah had a wonderful question, which she posted on our Facebook community group. And she also sent us a voicemail. And we're going to basically set up this entire episode around this voicemail. Uh, Brad, hold on just a second. Let me play this. Hi, my name is Sarah. I am interested in finally starting travel hacking with the credit card programs that I've been hearing about through everybody on the podcast, which is amazing. Thank you for all this information. My question is, as somebody starting out, should I go after the Chase Gauntlet, which I know is super popular and anyone who started this travel hacking prior to knowing about it wishes they could have started with that? Or since my husband and I are planning a Disney vacation for next year, should we be following Brad's program from Richmond Saver that's specific for Disney hacking? As a little side note, my husband and I do have a timeshare from when we were financially insane. Uh, now we have some financial sanity. But this is going to be our last big trip through the timeshare before we get rid of it. So we don't need housing when we go. We will only need to be hacking airlines and tickets. I feel like the airlines is the easy part, but the tickets I know is a little bit more particular. So I'm curious for something for a very specific trip like Disney, should I be going more geared towards that? Or should I really focus on the Chase Gauntlet because this is just one trip and the Chase Gauntlet is going to cover all of those trips thereafter? Thank you for all you do. And I can't wait to hear your feedback. All right, Sarah, that is a great question for sure. And I actually get this exact same question a lot, which is why we're playing it right now. I think this definitely resonates with the audience, both 
from actually Disney. There are lots of families. I know my family in particular, we went to Disney World three years ago, and that was really how I got into travel rewards, more or less. And and I will explain that in a little bit. But not only that, but certainly, where do you go after you've opened up a number of chase cards? I think that that is a question that people who were getting into this strategy, they have that question no matter what. Because as we've mentioned previously, Chase has the vast majority of the real top tier travel cards. And now with their 524 rule, which is basically if you've opened up five or more credit cards in the last 24 months, okay, from any bank, not just Chase, from any bank, including authorized user cards. So if you were an authorized user, on your spouse's account, that counts as a card that you've opened, okay, for this 524 rule. So if you've opened five of those cards in the last 24 months, Chase pretty much will not allow you to get approved for another credit card. That's even if your credit score is perfect and 850, it doesn't matter. That is how basically they're trying to weed people out who are who are opening too many cards and who are not profitable customers. So you can certainly understand this from Chase's point of view. So yeah, so that naturally leads us to say, where to go from here. So you can contemplate just stop opening cards for a while and get back under 524, which interestingly enough is what Laura and I are doing right now. And that is, so that's our current strategy. And I don't think I've mentioned this publicly anywhere is that we really have for the last year or so, we have essentially stopped opening up cards because we both desperately want to get under 524 just because Chase has the best card. Or if you're not interested in doing that, there certainly are cards from other banks. You know, there's Citibank, there's Amex, there's Capital One, Barclay card. So you can do that. There are probably 10 to 20 top credit cards that you can open from those banks as well. So you definitely have options, but just like anything in life and just like anything in FI, you need to figure out what your strategy is and what your path is. And we can give the information, obviously, but at the end of the day, you just need to determine what's best for you. And I can say it was not an easy choice for us to get to stop cold turkey and not open any credit cards, because at this point, that feels like a really foreign thing because we have been opening up cards for the last handful of years at this point. I love that you mentioned again that you guys are going to be getting back under the 524 and giving yourself another shot at it. I, I want to come back and just reference this because you're doing it with a spouse or a partner. It is 1024. And that's interesting because Brad and I both take the path of least resistance. We don't churn. We don't try to game anything out. We just transfer our normal spending onto these cards. And that means that there is a, a real limit on how fast we earn these because we are only meeting the minimum spend every two to three months per card. And we're doing that very easily, but there's a real timeline on how quickly we go through these. So if we're alternating between me, I get one, three months later, my spouse gets one, we have 10 of those. And so often what you would find if you're going through the Chase Gauntlet and you're just transferring your normal spending onto these cards, that by the time you come to that 10th card, if you're not being overly aggressive, you will have then given yourself enough time to restart the cycle if you wanted to. Yeah, and that's a very good point. And for anybody who doesn't know this terminology of the chase gauntlet, that's something that Jonathan kind of made up, which is actually, we see it now across the internet, which is kind of kind of cool, that he basically just created this terminology and now it's kind of a real thing. So what, what it is is opening up, since as I mentioned, Chase has the vast majority of these top tier cards and they have this 524 rule, you wanna maximize Chase cards as best you can. So it was just kind of a strategy to open up five Chase credit cards in a two-year period and kind of do that on a rolling cycle. So that's kind of the the 
very abbreviated clip notes version of that. So once you come to the end of this chase gauntlet, you need a holding place for all these points. And in my case, I have roughly 350,000 points. I actually still have a few more cards that I can get in the chase gauntlet. And I'm and I'm spacing them out intentionally uh, just because of my own travel plans. But at some point, you're going to end up with this massive number of points. And it's helpful just from an organizational perspective to maintain them in one place. And so there's two premium cards that I really like as a holding account, and they both have advantages and disadvantages, uh, but that is the Chase Sapphire Preferred and the Chase Sapphire Reserve. Now, we talk about the pros and cons of those in depth in episode nine. I will say that I am now using the Reserve as my holding account, and it has some unique advantages to it, which we can talk about in another episode, but that is a great place just to hold all those points. And one of those advantages is that when you redeem travel through the Chase Ultimate Rewards portal, you get a 1.5 cents per point valuation, which gives you some additional flexibility if you were to need that with making a redemption. Uh, But Brad, I think what would be cool is if we just set the stage, let's just say that someone now has completed the gauntlet. They've got all these points either in the, the reserve or in the preferred. That's their holding card that they're using for all these and they're trying to figure out what is next. I mean, what are your thoughts uh, in terms of what their next play should be if they decide they're not just going to repeat the chase gauntlet? Yeah. So, I mean, at that point, I guess we're supposing that they've opened no cards from any other banks. So they've obviously maximized chase cards and now it's on to Amex and Citibank and and Capital One and Barclays. So at that point, we're just maximizing the best bonuses available. So, I mean, just off the top of my head, what I would say is American Express, they also have a transferable currency. Those are called membership rewards points. And those are primarily earned through the Amex Gold and Amex Platinum cards. So there's a personal and a business version of each of those. And now Amex has a different rule, whereas Chase doesn't allow you they have A, the 524 rule, and B, they also have a rule where you can't get a bonus on the same card within a 24-month period. So for Chase, let's say you did close a card, just for sheer sake of argument, and you wanted to reopen it at some point down the line. You could not do that and get the bonus again if you had last gotten the bonus within the last 24 months. So you have to wait for 24 months after you last earned the bonus. So it's not when you close the card, it's not when you open it, it's when you actually earn the bonus. Now, of course, you want to be a little conservative and let's say add in an extra month just in case there's some argument over the exact bonus date. But with Amex, the way that it works is they actually only allow you one bonus per card per lifetime. So that's a much more restrictive rule because once you get the bonus, that's it. That's all she wrote. So Naturally, you want to make sure you're opening these cards when they have an excellent or historically high bonus, let's say. You clearly wouldn't want to open a Delta MX if it had a 30,000 mile bonus when we see 50,000 mile bonuses pretty often. And there are some other quality Amex cards. So certainly they're hotel cards, at least for the time being. There is a Starwood Preferred Guest credit card by Amex, and there's both the personal and the business version of that. And even though this bonus generally only has somewhere in the vicinity of a 25,000 point bonus, it is a top tier card. So this is one of my top five cards, let's say. And I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, These points are really valuable, not only for Starwood Hotels, obviously, because they have a very, very reasonable redemption rate where you can even get like category one hotels for two or 3,000 points 
which is phenomenal. But also these are actually transferable points, which is interesting. They have, I, I think, a couple dozen airlines that Starwood points transfer to. So they really operate in a very similar sense to the Chase Ultimate Rewards points that we love so much and also the Amex Membership Rewards points, which I was m mentioning in passing a few minutes ago, which those are also transferable points. And they just have a different list of transfer partners. Each, each set of these transferable currencies has a different list of transfer partners. We happen to like the Chase partners the best just because I personally like Southwest. I love Hyatt Hotels. United is a great option. So even though it's a smaller list, Chase, I, I think it's the best set of transfer partners. But Starwood and Amex Membership Rewards, those are must-have points as well. Awesome. So that kind of brings us to the close on the Amex cards. Uh, what else should we talk about? So the other bank cards that I would recommend are certainly the American Airlines cards by Citibank. Those are quality, quality cards. American Airlines miles are an essential part of any kind of cohesive travel reward strategy. So whereas you definitely start with transferable points, in my opinion, you still need a significant amount of miles in the major currencies. So to me, that's American Airlines, that's United Airlines, Delta, and I love British Airways miles, as I mentioned on episode nine. So those currencies would be where I would start immediately after the transferable points. And then some of the other banks have nice cards as well. I know both Capital One and Barclay card have cards that I call like fixed value. Now, I also mentioned this on episode nine, but just want to talk about it for a second here. These are not traditional miles. So uh, Capital One Venture, for instance, you always see commercials for that card. Uh, these are not traditional miles in any real sense where let's say you had 60,000 United miles and that was good for, according to their award chart, that's good for a round trip to Europe. No matter whether the cash price is $800 or 8,000, it's just 60,000 miles as long as they have the saver level availability. So that's how a traditional frequent flyer mile program works. Whereas with these fixed value cards, they are just basically worth one cent per point. So 60,000 Capital One Venture miles are worth $600. No more, no less. They're just worth $600. You book the travel with your credit card, you pay for it with your credit card, and you log into your credit card account after the fact and just kind of redeem those miles against that travel expense. And it'll give you a, a credit on your statement for whatever amount of miles you redeemed. In, in my hypothetical, it would be $600 for the 60,000 miles that you redeemed. Now, now, obviously the upside is limited, but there's a ton of flexibility. So anywhere you can purchase a quote unquote travel expense, you can use those miles. So it doesn't have to be limited to certain hotels or certain airlines or only saver level tickets or all this other stuff that kind of frustrates people with frequent flyer miles sometimes. So the flexibility is fantastic. And for people in the Choose of I community who are great deal seekers, who are do-it-yourselfers, who like to search and find deals, if you find some incredible savings on travel, you can pay for it with your Capital One Venture or Barclay Card Arrival Plus and take advantage of that while still using miles to wipe that expense down to zero. So it's the best of both worlds in that regard. So again, even though the upside is limited, those cards are fantastic as well. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's a real quick overview of the, the non chase cards that I would recommend just off the top of my head. I mean, of course, this is not an exhaustive look at every single card. There are certainly top tier cards that I left out of this, but, but that gives you a very quick overview of, of where to go from there. That's really cool. 
this brings us to like an interesting paradox. Uh, so you've come to the end of the chase gauntlet. You have 300 to 500,000 ultimate rewards, and maybe you're at this place where you can make a choice between restarting it and going through it slowly again, or you decide you want to just go buck wild and do everything. All the other ones you mentioned, you want to just get a huge variety of points. And you, most of us are going to have to make that decision because if you decide to go that route, you're obviously kicking the can down the road before you'd be eligible to redo the chase. And I could see the appeal once you come to the end of the chase gauntlet to go ahead and get some more diverse points built into your nest egg. Um, so it's kind of almost sets you up for a real decision. And I think part of that would have to be what sort of trips do you want to make? Yeah, that's exactly right. And that ties directly into Sarah's question, certainly about Disney specifically. But I think that is a decision point and an inflection point for people who are getting into this this hobby or this strategy, whatever you want to call it. For me, if it were up to me and I were doing it all over again, I probably would branch out beyond Chase after you reach the end of, of the 524. Because at that point, you do want to start earning American Airlines miles and Delta miles and Starwood points and also these fixed value points, like I mentioned. So I think those are really an essential part of any overall cohesive travel reward strategy. So to leave them out, I, I would have a very difficult time with that, you know, because I just I just wouldn't have enough flexibility, even though clearly chase cards with Southwest and United and the ultimate rewards that do transfer, you have a lot of options. So, I mean, you, you really can't go wrong either way here. But if it were up to me, I probably would branch out. But again, like I mentioned earlier, this is personal preference. So you, we're just trying to provide you the information and you have to make that decision. But I think you can go either way. But if it were my first time through, I definitely would branch out beyond Chase. But as I mentioned earlier, since I've already done both, now I'm at the point where I really want more Chase points. And I really want access to more chase cards. So we're holding off on opening cards, period. I mean, ultimately for a 12 to 18 month time period. So it's a fairly significant choice that we're making, certainly. See, Sarah, I, I told you we were going to get back to your initial question. So here we've gone full circle. It was important to set the stage. And now really what it comes down to is next year you want to go to Disney World. That's only 12 months away. And you're just now finding out about travel rewards. You've got a choice to make. Do you pursue the chase gauntlet because it is the place to start. It, it is where everyone should be considering starting because it gives you so much flexibility. Or do you say, this is the trip that I want to make. I'm willing to, to sacrifice most of the chase gauntlet in order to achieve this goal and then come back to it. And it's definitely going to be a personal preference, but I think in order for us to get an answer, let's just put this to Brad. Brad, you're starting out, you're in this situation, you've got 12 months. What would you do? Yeah, this is not an easy answer. I think because I do work with so many people who are going to Disney World and using rewards points through my other website, Richmond Savers, I've seen both sides of the answer, actually, and, and where people go with this. So I'll kind of give you an overview of what the decision point and like how I help people decide. I think for people who are very financially savvy and are into FI, and you know, a lot of people come to me from that, that world. I generally say to myself, all right, these people are savvy, they're long-term thinkers, and they want to maximize their savings over a lifetime, not just necessarily one trip. Now, for those people, I think it's really hard to pass up the chase cards 
I really, really do. But I bet you, Brad, if this were your mom that came to you and said, I really want to go to Disney World, what should I do? I bet you the answer is different, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's not to pick up my mom, but uh, yeah, I mean, if it were just a one-off trip, right? And somebody wanted to save, which is what really the vast majority of people coming to me for help for Disney, where they are, then the answer is clear. It's go after the specific cards that will help you get to Disney. That's that's a no brainer. So that's kind of where I make the decision point. It's if someone is a long term thinker, they're into five, they're looking to maximize savings, they're looking to travel over a multi year period, then I think you have to put the Disney trip aside and maybe even if you possibly can postpone it an extra six or 12 months, you know, that's kind of pie in the sky. I'm not sure if your kids will let you do that, but but if you could, that would be fantastic. But even if not, I think it makes sense to go after the chase cards first. You just, you will regret that for years that you couldn't get access to chase cards just because you wanted to go after this one particular Disney trip. Whereas for someone who's just kind of coming off the street, they don't know if travel, they don't know anything about me. They don't know if travel rewards are real or not, or if this is a scam. Well, you know, then I go for, for wins, you know, obvious quick wins. And there's no better win than booking the Disney Dolphin Hotel, which is a real luxury hotel on site at Disney and using Starwood points to book that and saving, you know, 300 plus dollars per night, which is a huge savings. You know, you're saying there are five, six nights, it's 15 to $1,800 just for opening up really two credit cards. So that is phenomenal. And, and yeah, you probably actually would have Starwood points left over even on a, a five, a five night trip, which is cool if you open up two of those cards. So you could, if you really wanted to, you could stay for six or seven nights off two cards. I, I just think in terms of my own trip, which was five nights, but that's what I would do. It would be that win, get these people to Disney, save them really up to $4,000. That's what you could save. And the Disney trip is the easiest, in my opinion, of all the travel rewards trips because there's very little to it. Now that I figured out all the details, which is just, like I said, you use Starwood points to book the Disney Dolphin Hotel. At the time we're recording this, it's a category four hotel, so it's only 10,000 points per night and you get the fifth night free on any five or more night booking. So 40,000 points for five nights, which is incredible. So that you're done, boom, just like that with your hotels. And then I would use the fixed value value cards like the Barclay Card Arrival Plus and the Capital One Venture. And that can actually purchase your Disney World Park tickets, which is incredible. I found a real workaround for this. And this took a lot of hours of research a number of years ago when I first discovered this. But you can't purchase Disney tickets through Disney World, actually, on those cards because they don't count for some bizarro reason as a travel expense. It's like it depends how it's coded for the credit card. And Disney World does not code as a travel expense. Again, for whatever reason, that's beyond me. But yeah, that is bizarre. Uh, yeah, it is. It's really weird. So I had to find a ticket seller, an authorized ticket seller that did count as a travel expense for those credit cards. And I found this company called UndercoverTourist.com. And they're very reputable. They're in every guidebook. MouseSavers.com, which is one of the, the biggest Disney sites. They love them and, and talk up Undercover Tourists all the time. So I felt very safe in using them. And I actually got on the phone with one of their VPs and she was nice enough to to literally do a test 
charge and a test authorization to see how it would come up on my credit card statement, which was really cool. That was like the one time I've ever gotten any insider help for having a blog. So that was <laughs> that that kind of felt pretty cool. But yeah, we determined that it definitely coded as travel. And from there on, it was that was easy to recommend. So yeah, for Walt Disney World in Florida, it's unquestionably undercovertourist.com. I did find a company that also helped me out in similar regard for Disneyland in California. And I'll link to this in the show notes with the exact page, but I think the site is called A-Res Travel. So it's A-R-E-S travel.com. And that definitely 100% works for Disneyland tickets using, again, these fixed value cards like Venture, Arrival Plus, and the Capital One Spark Miles card. So yeah, I mean, that could not possibly be easier. Like I mentioned earlier, you just simply pay for that expense with your credit card, log in after the fact, redeem your miles, and boom, that expense or some portion thereof, as many miles as you have, is off your credit card statement. So it could not possibly be easier to do that. So just in a couple minutes of explaining this, we have the Disney World hotels on site and we have the Disney World park tickets. So boom, that's absolutely simple. Brad, you make a fantastic travel guide. Well done, sir. <laughs> Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm doing my best here. So there's a third leg to this trip, and that's the airline tickets. And the cool part about the Orlando International Airport is they are a significant hub for Southwest Airlines. And Southwest is, in my opinion, the absolute easiest frequent flyer mile program to use especially for families. Because the cool thing with Southwest is that they don't limit award availability like any of the major legacy carriers like American, Delta, United, how they do where it's just based on award availability. And that's the the frustrating blackout date thing that, that everybody always talks about. And in all reality, blackout dates are few and far between. But what it usually means is that there are only a couple of these saver level tickets on each flight and people have booked them. So that looks like a blackout to you. It's really not because in all likelihood there were tickets available, but somebody just booked them. So that's how the legacy carriers work. But the way that Southwest works is that it's just a simple function of the cash price. So they give you the cash price of the seat and then you can just click one of those little buttons that says show in miles and it just does their little behind the scenes calculation, tells you how many miles it is. It really is as simple as that. And Again, the nice thing is it's not limited to one or two or three seats on each plane. It's unlimited. It's just based on the price. So if you have a family of four, a family of five, six, whatever it is, you can book these seats and you don't have to worry. Yeah. And I think with Southwest, one of the features that I always hear about it is just that it gives you so much flexibility with when you book it. Right, Brad? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's because Southwest only opens their travel schedule about six months. Sometimes it's generally between five and seven months out. You don't have the option to book out 12 months in advance. So with travel rewards, and the cool thing here is that we're, we're explaining Disney here, but this is really giving the audience an entire overview of, of travel rewards and how I think about it in general, is that you generally want to book your frequent flyer mile seats on, the, again, the legacy carriers. You want to book them as soon as they are available because, again, there are a finite number of those seats on every flight and people book these things. 
So there are different rules depending on each airline, but let's just say it's it's approximately 11 to 12 months depending on the airline. It does differ and there are schedules that show that online, but let's just use that as kind of a general rule. So, I mean, you really need to have yourself in gear. You need to plan this out two years in advance to open the cards, get these miles and be ready to book the second these award seats open up. But with Southwest, you can actually do it in reverse. So you can actually book your Disney hotel. Now, there are really only a couple options. Like I mentioned, the Disney Dolphin. There's also the Disney Swan, which is also a Starwood hotel. That is currently a Category 5 hotel, though, and that costs significantly more points per night. But but it is an option. But anyway, the one constraint, albeit a minor constraint, in this entire Disney system is that hotel. Because, like I mentioned, buying the Disney World tickets is incredibly easy. Buying Southwest tickets are incredibly easy. And I will finish that thought in a minute here. But that leaves the only constraint being the award availability for the Disney Dolphin Hotel. Now, this is a huge hotel with hundreds and hundreds of rooms. And if you're flexible, which is what I always preach when it comes to travel rewards, you need to be a little bit flexible, right? If you only have one exact departure date and one exact arrival date or whatever it may be, that may or may not work. It's usually going to give you some frustration. But if you can be flexible, even plus or minus a couple of days, that's going to make a huge difference. So with the Disney trip, I advise to get that hotel in place as early as you can, because Starwood does not charge you a fee to cancel and to get your points redeposited. So there's no downside to getting the Starwood points and booking your hotel for certain dates. And then if you need to change it down the road, you change it, that's fine. Using this this kind of hypothetical here, you book your Starwood hotel, and then you realistically, you're gonna have to wait probably four or five, six months to book your Southwest tickets. But the nice thing is you're ready to roll the second they open up that schedule. So yeah, you have your Starwood hotel booked, you wait for Southwest to open their schedule, and you can really book at any given moment from when that schedule opens. And because there's so much flexibility, with the award seat options, you just go on to Southwest, mock up the flight, click points and book and boom, you're done. So that is not a constraint in the Disney travel at all. And because Orlando Airport is such a hub for Southwest flights, they fly direct from dozens upon dozens of cities in the U.S. And even if it doesn't have a direct flight, you can almost undoubtedly get a one stop trip from many of their hubs. Yeah, I mean, that is why I think the Disney trip is really pretty much the easiest. And it also resonates with people because for better or worse, just about every American family is gonna go to Disney World at some point or their kids are gonna beg them to go. So, and it's a high value savings. And I know my family, we saved over $4,000. And again, it was just a nice, easy win. I can definitely just kind of bring it back to the, the larger picture. I can definitely see why someone would want to go for that particular trip first, because it's just such a savings. It's money that's coming out of your pocket regardless, and you can make a case for that. But again, for someone who's looking at the the larger picture, the long term picture, there is the case to be made to go after chase cards first. So, Sarah, that is our response in its entirety, and we are very curious what you decide to do. So let us know in our Facebook community group or shoot us in our voicemail. Uh, so we can feature it on a future Friday roundup. But we hope that helps with that decision. I think this conversation uh, is a great inflection point, like Brad said earlier, for this rolling all these ideas together. You have the chase gauntlet 
and then you have everything else. And at some point, you're going to pivot. Most of us are going to pivot and we're going to want to do what Brad said and diversify the assortment of points that we have, which gives us more flexibility down the road. One of the great things of being a part of this crowdsourced community that's interested in everything optimized is that we get to share these little things that we figured out that make it better. So you need to start somewhere. And I would say start within a relatively safe box like the chase gauntlet where you really can't go wrong. And then from there, when you're ready to to get more aggressive and diversify your experiences and the types of trips you, you can make, this is a great community to do that in just because you can benefit from what other people have already done. Like that little tip that Brad gave with the undercover tourist, you would never figure that out on your own. In fact, you would buy your ticket and then just be disappointed with why you couldn't redeem your Barclay cash value points. These are the little tips that you don't need to start there. Start somewhere that's you can almost do no wrong, like the chase gauntlet. And then once you get past that point, go ahead and take the next step and you can get more and more bold with these decisions and have a lot of fun doing it. This is fun because we're doing this in the context of our FI community. There's a, there's a few things that our FI community doesn't have to worry about. We don't have to necessarily worry about just having that two weeks of vacation each year and that's all we get. Once you're post-FI, you can really design your life around the trips that you want to make. Once you're at the point where you're choosing an FFLC or a fully funded lifestyle change, you can design your life around the trips you want to make and you can design the trips you want to make around the redemptions that you're able to get. So you've added simplicity and flexibility into your lifestyle, which then allows you to do more for less. And that is ultimately what we're going for. Simplicity, efficiency, and by simplifying all of these things and allowing yourself to win with stuff that other people are hemorrhaging dollars on, hopefully we give you the opportunity to experience more happiness with your loved ones and family. So uh, all of this hopefully ties together to really tell this cool, compelling story. And I think if you look at this in a vacuum, wow, you're doing all these crazy things, you're opening all these cards, I can see that maybe it doesn't make sense to someone on the outside. But when you look at it through the focus lens of the FI community, it's such an obvious choice and it does make sense and you're in the right place if this appealed to you. So uh, thanks for joining us today as we continue to go down the road less traveled. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.